the day only has 24 hours. You only have two hands. So your ability to do anything at scale or even not at scale will depend on the quality of the people that you have around you. Whether they are the people who work with you, are your bosses, your peers, and then on a broader sense, your customers, there's only very little that we can do by ourselves. And one of the trappings, one of the traps that people sometimes uh, fall under is that when they get promoted, they feel that they should continue to do their old job plus the new job. And that's not the reason why they got promoted. They got promoted because somebody saw their talent and somebody saw that they could have an influence and an impact in the organization beyond what they can do with 24 hours. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Hernan Lopez is the co-founder and chairperson of Danvis. It's a startup bringing digital art into the real world through museum-quality LED displays. But previously, Lopez was a first mover in the emerging podcast industry, seeing the vision and opportunity long before many others. He was the founder and CEO of Wondry, a storytelling podcast network acquired by Amazon in 2021 for a reported $300 million. Wondry is best known for its immersive storytelling podcasts, including Dr. Death, Dirty John, American History Tellers, Business Wars, The Shrink Next Door, and Joe Exotic. Prior to founding Wondry, Hernan was president and CEO of Fox International Channels. He proudly chairs the Hernan Lopez Family Foundation, which is dedicated to helping address diversity in leadership. Hernan is also a founding governor of the Podcast Academy and a board member of the Latino Donor Collaborative. He holds an MBA from the University of Miami and lives in Los Angeles with his family. Hernan is a true success story for all immigrants. He didn't come to the United States until he was in his 20s. So I had to start the conversation by asking him about his childhood and what it was like growing up in Argentina. Thank you for having me. Um, as you know, I grew up in um, the suburbs of Buenos Aires. My dad uh, was a store um, owner of auto parts and my mom was an accountant. And we had a, a really good, a really um, just good upbringing as it related to work ethics and the value of studying. And, uh, but my parents uh, really wanted me to be uh, in a traditional career. They wanted me to be a doctor, an engineer, and an accountant. And I said, I want to study advertising, which wasn't <laughs> even a career and, uh, or one of those careers that people expected you to have. So I was very fortunate that when I started college at night, I got a job during the day to work for a radio uh, company that also owned a cable station, this a cable operator. This is 20, 30 years ago plus uh, now in Argentina. And I, was, I wanted to be a copywriter and they made me, uh, they put me in the advertising sales team. So from a very early age, I was able to connect with the creative side 
of my brain and the business side of my brain. I learned a lot of business from those uh, early managers. And then a couple of years later, I moved to another company that also owned radio, but I came from the broadcast television world. It's interesting, you know, when you think back and going back to those early days and talking about your father being an entrepreneur and uh, your mom with the finance and accounting, are there things still with you today that you learned from them early on? Oh, I learned probably my all of my appreciation of uh, finance and the business side came from both of them from different perspectives. Obviously, my mom on the bookkeeping side and, and my dad on actually making um, auto parts and selling them at the store. Both of those, all of the things that I learned from them travel through my career. But most importantly, it's the sense that if you want it, to um, something in any area of life, you just needed to go ahead and try to get it. You didn't. You didn't uh, have to. You, you you shouldn't be waiting for something magically to happen to you for somebody to get things for you. You should have initiative, which is something that I look for uh, in in every employee that that we hired that I've hired since. You know, and it sounds like too for you, you were really going to school, but you were working as well. And to look back on those days, I would assume that impacted you as well to the success you would go on to have. I was lucky in many respects, yes, because I was the things I was learning uh, in college at night, I could apply at work during the day. And I was particularly lucky that when I moved over to the broadcast station that, that own a radio company. I went with two other executives from my uh, first employer that very promptly left. So I was at 21 faced with an opportunity to, to um, essentially move and ask for a bigger role. And I asked my boss, who uh, this amazing executive, Rogelio Pianesa, who was in his 60s, whether I could run the advertising sales team myself. And very much to my astonishment, he said, yes, he probably thought, you know, the kid is, you know, deserves a chance. And so I found myself in this very unusual position of uh, having people reporting to me who are uh, most of them, almost all of them, all of them, me and, and finding and learning how to manage. And I stayed out of the company for um, almost four years. And again, he, he was one of the many people that really created an inflection point in my career that really helped me just through chance and through the lessons that imparted in me move along on my career. It sounds like at that time, he must have become a, a mentor. But the fact that you were able to ask that at such a young age, where did, where did that come from internally? Because that's a big ask. I felt that I had nothing to lose. And I felt that if I didn't raise my hand, and sometimes a lot of what happens to one in one's career is, is a matter of being at the right place at the right time. And I felt if I didn't ask, the worst that could happen is that they could say no, he could say no. And I knew that he wasn't particularly looking forward to spending a lot of time in interviewing a manager and recruiting them. Uh, so he must have also thought, well, the worst that can happen is that he doesn't do a good job for three months and then we'll have to replace him. But very fortunately for me, the sales uh, came in and, and we were able to, to essentially build the team. It was also a very young, uh, very uh, young company, very, very small team. The radio station had just been bought by this much larger broadcast station. And I, I was also in a fortuitous, uh, very fortunate uh, circumstance when four years later, 
I started to, I decided that I wanted to go back to cable television. Uh, remember, this is in the 80s, oh, yeah. um, I'm sorry, in the 90s, when cable television throughout the Americas uh, was starting to grow and there was more and more demand. And I got recruited by a small cable channel that had just opened an office in Argentina, but they were based in Miami. And through that work, the, through that job, I was able to start coming to the U.S. and experience what it was to interact with American companies and American style of doing business, even though uh, my English was not great at all. I barely spoke any. And, uh, but, but it gave me, it just implanted me that bug of what if one day I worked at an American company, but in the U.S. Take me back to those days when you were coming here on business and, and doing a lot of work in Miami and when you touch down and and see what American business was like, was that exciting for you? Did you feel right then and there that you wanted to be part of that? Very much so, especially given that um, yeah, I was 26 at the time. I had never been to the U.S. for vacation. It was just not something that my family had thought about. And we uh, first time I get to the U.S., I, I just did not know what to expect. Uh, and I come in and I find that people do what they say they're going to do. I, I feel that there's a meritocracy and an organization and, and a structure and, and an ambition uh, and, 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 and a culture that really celebrates um, entrepreneurship. This company that I was working for was, was a young, maybe a couple of years old company. So I felt at that time that uh, maybe not at that moment, but down the line, an opportunity to work in the U.S. would happen. And so six months later, so I didn't work for this company much, for, for a long time, uh, Fox recruited me to run their advertising sales rep in, the, in Argentina. So I wasn't working for them directly. I was working for the company that represented uh, their ad sales. And that's when I started to come again to uh, Miami and L.A. and a few, um, less than a year later, they, um, they offered me a job to move to Miami and join, the, and join their advertising sales team. And was there any hesitation at all or were you ready to make that move? Well, there was because obviously my family is still in Argentina and my friends and, and I had to take a pay cut in order to uh, come to the U.S. But and Argentina was in that time, this is 1997, was going through a particularly strong economic boom. But I felt that this investment in my career would pay off over the years. And, and again, much like it would have been in the early years when, when I took that job um, as, as a manager, what's the worst that can happen? I, I, I could go back to Argentina if, if it didn't succeed. I mean, the, if anything, the biggest problem is that I didn't have a network and my accent was even stronger mm. than it is today. My English in general just wasn't good at all. Was that hard for you? Did you see that as an impediment at the time? Were you conscious of, uh, conscious of it? For, for sure, for sure. To this day, I'm, I'm overly conscious uh, about it. And but my bosses, um, Ashley Marable in particular, told me, "Look, you're going to be Miami. Half the people that you speak in with speak uh, Spanish as a first language, and you're going to integrate over the years. And uh, so, so you learn what you need to learn." And, but also, um, I, again, he was another one of the people that really had an impact in my career. But about a year into it, I felt that I wanted to move beyond advertising sales. And I wanted to have what's so-called, the, the, what's called a P&L job, a profit and loss responsibility. Mm -hmm. And 
I noticed that most of the people at the organization that had PL jobs had uh, MBAs and I did not have a business degree. And so I, I decided to go to business school to University of Miami on the weekends while continuing to work for Fox on weekdays and, and made sure that people in the organization were aware that I was taking this step in order to hone in my skills and just learn about business in general. And again, very, very fortunately, seven or so months later, an opportunity opened up uh, that required me to move to LA to run the Fox Entertainment Channel, that the, essentially the, the Latin American series and movies channel that carried The Simpsons and Family Guy, those kind of shows. And I, I still kept going back to Miami to finish the MBA because I felt that that was important in general. But I moved to LA then in 2000, and I, I this is where I still live. And you were a young guy at the time, and and this opportunity. I mean, you obviously made these opportunities. You realized you needed, you wanted PL responsibility. You needed to go get an MBA. You realized a lot of these things and you didn't sit around on the couch. You did it on the weekend. You worked. But what was that like getting that call and your first experience at Fox in Los Angeles? It was incredibly exciting because again, this this came at a time where cable television was still in its infancy in Latin America and much outside of the U.S. In, in general. And it was the first time that somebody was giving me a chance to run what was a yeah, 150 person division. So I went from managing a few people to 150 and moving into a new place that I knew was the headquarters of the entertainment world. I knew that over time, if you want to have a career in entertainment, you can probably end up in um, Los Angeles, New York, London. There are a few places that would be better locations to be in if you want to be in that, that industry. And again, I started to meet people who were incredibly smart and incredibly generous with their time. And I get those, essentially that set the stage for the next 15 years that I spent over there. Well, you did incredibly well, I know, from research. Correct me if I'm wrong, you grew this division and group from a hundred and so employees, like you said, to over 4,000 worldwide in a short period of time. How were you able to do that? What were some of the things that you were able to implement that made you so successful at Fox? Well, I, I can say that I did that obviously it was a team, right? As always, remember I was, um, I, I, I ran the Latin American division, then got promoted to COO in 2008 and then to CEO in 2011. But for most of that time, until he left, my boss, David Haslin, then was the CEO of Fox International Channels. Then I took over from him in 2011 when the organization was about 3,000 um, employees already. And I was, again, super fortunate to work under amazing business executives, people like today are running the, some of the premier entertainment companies. Tony Vinciquera was running Sony. Mike Hopkins was a colleague of mine. He's now running Amazon. Uh, Peter Churning, uh, who started his own group, the uh, the, the Churning group, Chase Carey, um, Dana Walden, who's running Disney. And I learned from them how to scale businesses, how to hire, how to manage. And obviously, Probably nobody had more of an impact than uh, my direct boss, David Hassenden. But one of the things that 
very quickly, I realized when we were going from 150 employees to 200 to 500 to 1,000 is that the day only has 24 hours. You only have two hands. So your ability to do anything at scale or even not at scale will depend on the quality of the people that you have around you. Whether they are the people who work with you, uh, your bosses, your peers, and then on a broader sense, your customers, there's only very little that we can do by ourselves. And one of the trappings, one of the traps that people sometimes uh, fall under is that when they get promoted, they feel that they should continue to do their old job plus the new job. And that's not the reason why they got promoted. They got promoted because somebody saw their talent and somebody saw that they could have an influence and an impact in the organization beyond what they can do with 24 hours. Was that hard for you as you went up the ladder to be able to let go of the past and jump into new positions? It wasn't hard because I happened to stumble upon books that essentially put that as the number one lesson of when you get promoted. I was a business book, still am, business book junkie. And one of the books that I remember in particular on this stage was called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it's one of the books that most managers who get promoted first time, yeah, 20, 30-year-old book, but essentially tells you that uh, you should be managing, spending your time managing vision to doing, but particularly managing. And then when you become promoted to managers, manager of managers, you become aware that now you're recruiting people for their own ability to inspire others, to get things done, to recruit, to get people really aligned and and, uh, motivated to be part of the mission of the company. So we want to, I, I need to obviously talk about Wondry, which as many of our listeners know, was just this incredible podcasting company. One of the first, you were one of the first out there. How did the idea come about? And what was it like trans going from this big time company to being an entrepreneur? So that, that process played out very slowly. I often tell the story that I was at Fox for 18 years, but about half that time, I was that one entrepreneur, somebody who really had the dreams of being an entrepreneur, but for one reason or another, kept putting it off, postponing it. My, my job at Fox was great and I was happy and the industry was growing, but I had that bug every, every time that I spoke very much like you, like I spoke with an entrepreneur, I said, what if? And towards the end of my time at Fox, when I realized that I had been there for very long and I had this opportunity to start a new business and I didn't know whether that opportunity would come about if I waited too much longer. I had listened to Serial, uh, the podcast that essentially broke took the world by storm in 2014 and then Startup, another highly serialized narrative podcast. And I went and looked for other serialized podcasts like, like those and found nothing. I was very curious about why is it that nobody else has created anything close to what these two companies have created. And I realized that the companies that should have created those kind of podcasts were the radio companies. The radio companies had moved away from anything that was a music or talk, news and sports. And that's because in order to appreciate one of these a podcast, you need to be able to listen to them from beginning to end in a sequence. And that's not the environment for radio, but it's the environment for 
on-demand podcasting listening. And then it dawned on me that television had gone through a similar transition at the turn of the century when we went from episodic, close-ended shows to serialized, character-driven shows like The Sopranos and The Wire and Six Feet Under and then Breaking Bad and The Shield and Game of Thrones eventually. And that little change, if you know about the butterfly effect, right? There's the butterfly that, that started that change, I believe, was the creation of TiVo was uh, in, in uh, around the turn of the century was the first time that we were able to easily watch television on demand. Yeah. So my thought process was if TiVo is podcast and The Sopranos is serial, somebody could come up with FX, Showtime, AMC, everything else that followed after serial. So I wanted to be that company and I left my, po- my uh, post uh, at Fox in January of 2016. Fox made a small investment and the same month, I incorporated uh, Wondery and then I hired my first employee and, and off we went to the races, or, or so I thought. And what was that like? Go back, that feeling of, I just left Fox, where you had an incredible career, CEO level, just a superstar there. And all of a sudden, you're starting a business, big dream. And I assume it's just you and a couple of employees. What were you feeling at that time? It's worse than that, Robert, because (laughs) the whole industry, the whole podcast industry was worth $100 million. That's it, the whole industry. At Fox, we wouldn't even think of uh, buying a business that that wasn't itself uh, making that kind of money, just the business itself. So a lot of people thought I was crazy, to be honest. And they, they were wondering what's wrong with Hernan. Why did he go into podcasting of all things that he could have done? And it was scary and, and it was difficult in particular to raise money because I raised initially, in addition to that check from Fox, another 200000 I think, from friends and family and, and angels. And then I went to try to raise venture capital funding, which I'd never done before. And I kept completely empty-handed. Every single conversation played out the same way. You don't have enough content of your own. This is very hard. The market is too small. And unfortunately, they were right. Uh, so it wasn't that I could fault them for, for not investing money. They, they were a lot of the things that they were saying. And remember, venture capital firms say no 90 plus percent of the time. So the first year was tough. I think uh, we still were, however, fortunate that on the creative side, what we were doing at Wonder, particularly we wanted to do high touch, highly produced, serialized uh, shows that had a Hollywood sensibility when it came to narrative storytelling techniques and sound design. A lot of the other podcasts were coming from the public radio world and we were bringing more of the Hollywood sound to it. And the people at Apple Podcasts, again, talking about people who were really generous with, with their time and the promotion, in many respects, um, helped me uh, get our shows noticed and they featured us on the podcast store. So we were able to create a little bit of inertia where the podcast world that was small at the time said, all right, these guys are doing something different. Let's see what else they can do. Facing all of that rejection, knowing you could easily go back and get a big time job at a big time entertainment company. Were there moments in, let's say that first year where you were questioning yourself, getting a lot of these rejections and thinking, I should just go back. I can't tell you how hard it was the, the first year. Yes. And especially, you know, the first month that we brought revenue in, we made $10,000 in revenue. And I remember what is, how big can this thing give me? And, and I can't say that any part of me 
seriously considered giving up because I was only six months in and, and everybody had told me, look, the first, you know, being an entrepreneur is hard. I already had employees at the time, but I was bootstrapping the company because we weren't able to raise money. And um, I think everything changed a year, almost a year exactly after we launched when we had the first number one hit, a show called uh, Hollywood and Crime. The season was was the about the Black Dahlia old uh, case. And it was told in a very, uh, what we call emotionally immersive storytelling. The formula we found was around making listeners feel they're in the middle of the story through sound design and narrative structure and voice and use of music. So when we saw that that show was our first number one, we said, all right, people want to listen to these kind of stories. People are gravitating towards true stories more than drama, which is what we've done a lot of in, in year one. So how can we take this sound design and, and this essentially style and, and make it bigger? And again, very fortunately, I got introduced through a friend of a friend to the people at the LA Times who had been wanted to break into the podcast world. And they, they had wanted to do a daily show. And we had a conversation about that story they had been working on for print about this woman in Orange County who had been swindled by a very charming, uh, but very, at the same time, dangerous doctor or then learned wasn't a doctor. Hmm. And that story was Dirty John. And this was one of the many stories that they said they were working on. And I gravitated towards her. I said, well, that can be our first psychological thriller podcast. We went on to created it together. Again, we, we got a lot of help from the LA Times on the marketing side and, and from the Apple podcast team on the editorial, on the, on the promotional side. And we launched the show in October of 2017. I think we had expected that we would make half a million downloads an episode and it blew past 2 million downloads an episode. Wow. And it was the first show of ours that hit the zeitgeist and people were talking about it. And, and that show then allowed us to walk into every room, whether it's, it's an advertiser or a venture capital firm and say, we are the company that created Dirty John. And that one of those meetings included Greycroft, uh, the venture capital firm that through Alan Patrickoff led our Series A and, and really, again, another person that had a huge influence in, in positive influence in my career. More from our guests. But first, a word from our sponsors. Think about a bicycle. It takes balance to get where you want to go. Now, think about business. Whatever your business or organization, you ride the line between numbers and people. Just like the bike, it takes balance. CLA, CPAs, consultants, and wealth advisors. That's CLA. We'll get you there. Clifton Larson Allen LLP Investment Advisory Services are offered through Clifton Larson Allen Wealth Advisors LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. And our next sponsor. Whether you need digital tools so you can bank on the go, or you need a one-on-one -on -one with an experienced business banker, with PNC Bank, you got it. PNC's business banking team is built entirely around the way you like to do business. Innovative mobile tools that let you manage your cash flow, monitor your payments and more around the clock. 
give you the flexibility that every business owner needs. And PNC combines those digital tools with a team of business bankers who are ready to sit down and talk about the unique needs of your business and help you develop personalized strategies to move your business forward. Learn how PNC Bank can make a difference for you and your business at pnc.com slash bankyourway. PNC Bank, National Association member, FDIC. And we're back. At that time when that show hit, how did that, did that make you feel like I'm on to something? I'm, I'm, we're successful? What was your feelings even at that time? It was definitely the feeling that we have arrived at a first step, at a place where from that point on, it was going to be the idea, the, uh, the vision of essentially turning Wandering into the premier brand for emotionally, smart, uh, emotionally immersive storytelling was achievable. It wasn't that we were out of the woods. It wasn't that we had to, that everything would be easy breezy from the moment. But, but I knew that we arrived at a step that would make subsequent steps go uh, more easily, including because of the Series A, I was very fortunate to be able to recruit two very key members of the Wondery team, Jen Sargent, who uh, joined us, my COO, and she's now the CEO of Wondery, and Marshall Louis, my uh, chief content officer, who's, who's still with them at the Amazon organization. Yeah, it's kind of nice to see that I'm sure you're a mentor to them, and now them running the business must make you feel pretty good. And, you know, it's interesting because you had kind of the formula for, for the product, but you still then were able to, which is one of the hardest things in business, quickly scale. How were you able to do that? What was your strategy? I think it was very important for us to be methodical about release schedules and, and, and making sure that we launch enough of this, uh, enough uh, shows in a certain period of time. And again, I was bringing to Wondery things that everybody in the Hollywood world knows. For instance, I learned from the team at FX many years ago that even if you make a show that is amazing, you still need to promote it with a marketing budget that uh, sometimes can be comparable to the production budget of the show. And that's something that Again, uh, Peter Ligori at FX discovered maybe 20 plus years ago. And the podcast world was not really known. And it was a little anathema to most people think you should put all your money in production and then nothing, the show would sell itself. That's, again, a true misconception in many companies. The reality is that if your product is great, you'll still get a lot of benefit from having a significant promotional campaign because more people will listen, watch it, experience it. And we also noticed that uh, in the world of short miniseries, so the miniseries we're making were six episodes to maybe eight, there will be an influx of listeners and then those listeners will leave unless they had something else to listen to that we were promoting uh, to them. So that was the second big insight in, in the Wondery scaling story, how we are able to combine both those short series released within successive close enough periods of time with ongoing shows that we have like Business Wars and American History Tellers and uh, even The Rich that were on uh, 50 weeks a year, if that makes sense. So I think part of it was essentially building the brand. And also the other thing that 
we were very intentional about was creating sound design that was indistinguishable, that that was very unique and immediately distinguishable. The very same way that when people go and watch a Pixar or a Marvel movie, they know immediately that it's Marvel or Pixar without even seeing the, the opening. And that's something that we wanted to create from the sound icon, uh, the, the Sonic logo that Wondery has at the beginning of every show to just the style of the narration and the storytelling. You scaled up really quickly, built an incredible name, put out fantastic podcast series, and a lot of folks came knocking at the door and you ended up deciding to sell the business for a lot of money. Tell us about that process and what your thoughts were when that opportunity came. To the extent that I can speak, obviously, because there are commitments that one makes about um, what you can, I cannot say, but I uh, knew from the beginning that every time that you take venture capital money, you are going to need an exit. And the exit is either you sell to another company or you go public and or, or you merge. But really, that's not a preferred uh, outcome for most VCs. And I sense that one that was going to be difficult for Wondery to become a public company given the total size of the marketplace. So early on, I had imagined that the most likely outcome would be an acquisition. But when we raised our Series B round uh, in 2019, I knew that that meant that we needed to grow the company to a minimum of X before we could even entertain the conversation. And then 2020 happened. So the pandemic changes the dynamics of the of listening patterns and obviously uh, how advertisers are designed to spend their money. And by the time we already started to diversify by launching television shows or actually optioning television shows, we had we, we had a, a first look deal with Apple TV that had just been signed. We had an output agreement uh, with Audible as well, and, and we were about to launch our subscription service, Wondery Plus, and Liontree, who um, informally had helped me raise the CSA, a great, again, amazing person, Alex Michael. <laughs> oh, Alex. Uh, who, who you probably know in... in uh, yes. Uh, in, in, <laughs> in the summer of 2020, and, and said, Hernan, we're getting phone calls all the time asking whether you're interested. And I said, well, I mean, we, we talked about that. The timing is not now because our investors are going to want a certain, certain self-considerations for the exit. And another factor was that my employees, all of them were option holders and shareholders. So directly or indirectly, we had hundreds of shareholders in Wondery. But to the credit, Liontry went and make a, made a couple of phone calls and the um, and, um, we, we had a few presentations and then Amazon came in with, with really a, an offer that from the point of view of what I knew what they could do for the company going forward was undeniably a compelling offer. Two things that were important to me was, was Wondery going to be able to have a great home in the business that acquired it? And B, how equally important, how successful the team was going to be. And it was immediately apparent that, that Amazon uh, was the right exit for the company and the right solution for employees. And if you've seen what they've done over the last two years, I am incredibly proud of the work that, that uh, my team has done under Amazon and how Amazon has helped them achieve that success. Yeah, I love you brought up Alex and Lion Tree and the incredible job they've done. And funny enough, Alex had helped me before he actually 
just a, as a friend sell my business or just give me tips, much smaller business when we sold to creative artists agency. And I was just like, this guy is super bright, right? Super sharp. And he's done extremely well as, as they have. But when you do look back on Wondry and the business you built, what are some of your proudest moments and, and achievements that, you know, now we'll, we'll get to your, your new business, but you look back on and really appreciate. I'm proudest of a number of things. Uh, one of them being the culture that we were able to build at Wondery, which was very intentional, built through uh, every interview that we did. We talked about the values and the behaviors and skills. I was always like any person in the creative community, extremely pleased when I ran into somebody wearing the Wondery t-shirt hmm. and said, oh my God, I love Wondery. I listened to um, uh, The Shrink Next Door or to Recrash or uh, to um, any one of the shows that we made. But I think what, what, one particularly proud achievement because it was difficult was the creation uh, of the Podcast Academy. I realized towards the end of 2019 that the podcast industry, given that I was young, didn't have a trade association, didn't have a union, didn't have a creative organization that uh, gave out awards recognizing the best achievements. So I called a number of colleagues in the industry, both independents like Donald Albright from Up and Vanish and Tenderfoot to Kerry Hoffman from PRX from uh, people from Stitcher and Sony Music. And we very quickly put together an organization that set out to give the Ambies uh, that since then, most people refer to as the Oscars for podcasts. And again, from very early on, we decided that the organization would have a large board of governors, a significant number of them will be independent. More than half were women, 40% people of color. And we set out to essentially create the show that we gave the first Ambis in 2021. And today, as it happens, I sat on the committee uh, meeting uh, that is uh, planning the Ambis for 2023. So I think that sometimes you, when you're in a position of uh, privilege in many respects, you have to find a way to give back. And that was very important for the podcast industry just to be able to celebrate the voices of people who didn't necessarily have a big company behind them as um, some of us did. Yeah, that's so great. And obviously being in the space now and understanding the Academy and, you know, I was recently at the podcast movement conference, which has grown over the years and there were a lot of people there. And I know there's a lot of people who are saying, what's Hernan up to next? And I want to get into what you're doing now and and the business you're building. And if you can give us a little bit of insight into what you've been up to. Very much so. And you're seeing it behind me. This is our product. So uh, about a year ago, I started uh, with my co-founder, Jeannie Anderson, who comes from Satyard, a company called Danvas. And Danvas is setting out to create our first product to display in the highest possible quality digital art in the way that the artists envision. What you see behind me are three displays with some art that we're, we're going to premiere, although by the time this episode post probably will have premiered at the Armory Show in uh, New York, at the Javits Center. Uh, this is by an artist called Jason Ting. This is by an artist called uh, Luna Ikura, and this one by Helena Sarin. But I'll give you the surprise moment most people, how big do you think these displays are? Died mm, a couple of feet, maybe. All right. You will be surprised. 
Hernan's getting, oh my gosh, they're huge. So this is a four by four display. And one of the ideas that Gina and I wanted to solve was that digital artists have yeah. been around for decades, but they were never able to fully monetize their art because nobody knew how to value a file. Nobody knew, knew how to value something that could easily be copied. So NFTs and the blockchain solved that problem, but the problem of how to enjoy it and how to display it in real life still remain. And that's a problem that we're coming to solve. So you can, if you are a private collector of art, you can get a Danvas CRG. This is our first product and obviously it's priced to be the Tesla of displays. I know I'm being a little cheeky, but the idea is that you could have one of these displays next to a painting and you can have as much digital art as you would like. And, and um, you can create a playlist and be able to see what other people are seeing as well and, and be able to authenticate that you actually own the art that is playing on your screen as opposed to just viewing it without necessarily owning it. And what's that been like for you, you know, after being an entrepreneur, building up a business, how does it feel to go jump back in? It feels great, I have to say. You know, when you have one of those opportunities that you feel that if you don't do it, somebody else will. I think that's one good test for would-be entrepreneurs. It was, in many respects, easier this time around because when I went to all the wonder investors, Greg Croft, Lair Hippo, Waverly, uh, BDMI, they all said yes on the spot. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot easier. Uh, it's a lot easier when you're a second-time entrepreneur and, and you know they, they had a good exit with the first one. But at the same time, we launched this company through the pandemic. We're making displays. Uh, hardware is hard to do, hard to make. Um, but again, we, we are very fortunate that, that we partner with an incredibly talented uh, ID firm called Ammunition Group. They're uh, out of San Francisco. They're best known for creating beats by Dr. Dre and Square. Um, and, and our first engineer comes from uh, beats as well. Uh, David John and, and Sergey Table, head of software, work with Genie at Sachiart. So together we're, we're essentially creating a, a company that wants to really uh, celebrate digital art and put digital art at the same level as art period. I think over the years, it will all be called art, whereas digital physical, yeah. generative, programmatic, AI. And we think we're at one very fascinating inflection point of, of what we call a digital art renaissance. It's very, very, very exciting to be part of, of this moment. You know, Hernan, it's amazing. And I am sure you will be successful in this respect. And if you were to give advice. There's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are like you, you know, back at Fox and, you know, always thinking about taking the jump, looking for the right idea and stuck in it, unlike you who went for it. And, you know, there's other entrepreneurs just starting out and it's difficult. They see you and they think, oh, it's so easy. It's, you know, you're going to be selling your company for hundreds of millions of dollars. And But if you were to give advice right now to any entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs out there, especially at this time, what would you say to them? It's a broad question, but I would start with Starting a business that solves a problem that you're passionate about, and, and I put it in this other way uh, before, do something that excites you so much that you would do it for free. Because guess what? 
for the first couple of years, you probably <laughs> will be working for free. And it will show whenever you're talking to your potential customers, to your employees, to the people that you, you have to recruit. Again, remember, you only have two hands. You will need to attract people that share the same passion, the same enthusiasm for your product and the solution that, that you're the problem that you're trying to solve. So you need to see that in them as well. And another advice that I got, not everybody has the same uh, luxury, is get a great co-founder. At Wondery, because I was going very quickly from working at Fox to starting Wondery, I did not, uh, was, did not have a co-founder and I wish I had. Dan was very quickly, I knew I wasn't going to start the company without an amazing co-founder. And in Gini, I found a perfect co-founder. She spent the last four years as general manager of uh, Satchiar. But before that, she worked in several other marketplaces and, and tech companies. And she understands art. She understands product. She understands marketing. And she's just an amazing uh, leader and, and a pleasure to work with. Well, Hernan, I, I wish you the best of luck. I don't think you will need it. I love what you're doing with Donvos and the uh, NFTs and the art and our, our listeners will be able to see it on the clips. They, they look incredible. And uh, I just want to thank you for sharing your wisdom and your story and coming on How Success Happens. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure uh, being here and, and uh, I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Hernan. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.